Amen, amen. Well, uh, if you have joined us in the last few minutes, we just want to say welcome to you. We're so glad that you found us. If you haven't already done so, take a moment, put your name in the comment section. Let us know that you're with us. Let us know how many people are watching with us. And I wanted to take just a moment right now uh, to share some good news that we've shared by email the last couple of weeks in our Friday updates. If you're not getting those Friday updates, make sure that you let us know that. Send us an email, office at linwoodchurch.org, and let us know you're not receiving the Friday updates, and we'll add you to the list. That's a great way to communicate, and if you are receiving those, make sure you read them, uh, because there's news in there every week. And this past week, we, we mentioned that we are planning uh, to begin transitioning back towards in-person worship. And right now, we're tentatively targeting June 7th as the time that we would be able to welcome people into the sanctuary uh, for in-person worship. And we'll be providing additional details in the weeks ahead, but we wanted to share that good news with you. We're starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel on some of the things uh, that we have had to say goodbye to over these last few months, and uh, we're looking forward uh, to transitioning back towards that. So we're excited about that, and we're encouraged and want to encourage you with that as well. As we uh, transition into today's message, um, I, I got to warn you, the message got a lot better in the last couple of hours. As I was going through this the last time, every now and then on a Sunday morning, this happens, and uh, new ideas pop into my head or quotes come to mind. And that was the case this, uh, this week. So um, if you don't like it, just imagine how bad it would have been if it hadn't gotten better. And if you do like it, um, know that the Holy Spirit had something in this message for you today. Um, and so we're wrapping up our In the Meantime series next week. So this is week five. And uh, what a journey this has been. We've uh, kind of started talking about this new normal that we're in. We've looked at the idea that God has a purpose and a promise for our pain. We've talked about um, how God sees us even in the meantime. And that was just a powerful, powerful reminder from Pastor Sandy last week as she shared on Mother's Day and shared from a mother's heart in that moment, um, but reminded us with a bottom line that God sees you even when life makes it hard to see him. And in the meantime moments, sometimes that is exactly how it feels, like we can't see God. And so it's good to be reminded that he sees us even when life makes it hard to see him. And he hears us even when life makes it hard to hear him. And he loves us even when life makes it hard to love him and trust him. Well, today we're going to dive in and try to answer one of the biggest questions that people ask in the meantime. And maybe you've asked this question in this meantime season that we find ourselves in collectively, or perhaps you've asked this question before when you've found yourself in a meantime moment where you're not quite sure what to do. And uh, it's a question that has troubled scholars and philosophers and theologians and everyday people for centuries. It's been asked thousands and thousands and millions and millions of times. And what I'm not going to try to do today is give you some pat answer, but rather we're going to struggle with this question, this question that perhaps typifies the meantime. And that question is this. If God is good, why is there evil and suffering in the world? In fact, that's the title of the message. You may see that uh, the if is crossed out, and that should tip your hat 
tip my hat a little bit to where we're going with this message. But it's based on a couple of assumptions or what has been called the, the dilemma of faith in some circles, that if God allows evil and suffering to continue because he can't stop it, then maybe he isn't all-powerful. Or if you take it from a different angle, you might say, well, if he allows evil and suffering and he could stop it because he is all-powerful, then he's not all-good. And so we get left with this difficult, circum- or this difficult situation to wrestle through. And if we're not careful, we'll arrive at the false conclusion that the good, all-powerful God of the Bible does not exist. But that's not the truth. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And we're going to dig into what God's Word has to say about this question and what we should do, actually one thing we shouldn't do and three things we should do in the meantime. We're going to be looking at a passage from 1 Peter. So if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there now. It will be on the screen behind me, but I always think it's best if you can follow along in God's Word uh, in front of you, in the Bible that you regularly read, whether that's a paper Bible or an online Bible. Um, and we're going to be in First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. And I think Peter is uniquely qualified to speak into this issue. Uh, Peter was the one who denied Christ three times. And you can imagine the anguish of his soul as he became aware that he had done the very thing he promised he would not do. And then we know that Peter was persecuted for following Christ for the remainder of his life after the resurrection, after he was restored into ministry, after he became one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. He was persecuted by fellow Jews and ultimately martyred in Rome. And so I believe that Peter can speak from personal experience, but we also know that this letter was written to persecuted Christians. This letter was written to people in the meantime. This letter was written to faithful followers of Christ who were wrestling with this very question that we are going to be wrestling with today. And so I want to read this straight through, and then we'll highlight these, these things, the one thing we must not do and the three things we ought to do in the meantime. So here's what uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-12 through 12 says. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are being shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though it's refined by the fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that you have now been told or the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. And so in this big, complex, wordy passage, we see Peter telling us one thing to do and three things we must do. One thing not to do and three things we must do. First and foremost, if you get nothing else from this, The first thing you must not do is you must not abandon your faith. Do not abandon your faith in the meantime. And Peter knew that we were at risk in the meantime moments. He knew that we were at risk in the face of evil and suffering. That if our faith was not solid and rock solid, rooted in Christ, and rooted in Christ's suffering as well as his glory, that we would abandon our faith. And in the presence of evil and suffering, abandoning your faith in God will not help. I can save you, I can save you the, the question about that. I have been a pastor for over 10 years. I have never talked to somebody who said, well, you know, things got really difficult and, um, I was, you know, facing a lot of evil and a lot of suffering in my life. So I abandoned my faith and it turned out really well for me. I've never heard that story. And I don't think you have either because it's not helpful to abandon our faith, to abandon the source of our hope, to abandon the source of our comfort and our strength in the meantime. And so while it's a little philosophical, I got to kind of move down a rabbit trail that helps us understand why this is so unhelpful to abandon our faith. Because really, if you abandon your faith in God, if you become an atheist and believe that God does not exist, then there is no just or unjust. There is nothing that is right objectively or wrong objectively. And so you can't say that there is any evil or any suffering or anything that's inherently right or wrong. And so you're left with your feet firmly planted in midair. You have nothing to stand on, nothing to fall back on, nothing to carry you through except an empty ideology. And so if you're really struggling with this question today, I'm not making light of it. But I'm also going to tell you that it's at root, it's not a philosophical issue. Because I can tell you that believers throughout time have experienced evil and suffering. And non-believers throughout time have experienced evil and suffering. Evil and suffering are objective realities that are under the sovereignty and goodness of God, as we will see. And I've seen several studies in the last few years that have, have linked those who have chronic or terminal illnesses and faith to living longer and having a higher quality of life than those who do not have faith. And you can explain that away a number of different ways, but the reality is that abandoning your faith does not serve you well. It does not bring an end to your evil and suffering that you're facing. It just removes the hope and the encouragement and the joy that are available to those of us who believe, who rely upon, who trust in, who cling to Christ and Christ alone, even in the midst of evil. And suffering. So that's what you must not do. You must not 
abandon your faith. And the three things that we must do in the face of evil and suffering, the first is to look back to something. We must look back to something. In verse 7, the tail end of verse 6 and verse 7, we read that, that even though now you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials, these have come, in verse 7, so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. We look back to his faithfulness to us over the other times that we have faced evil and suffering, his faithfulness to people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and, and their fiery furnace experience. And we look back into the pages of Scripture and we see God's faithfulness to his people and to those that he had appointed to follow him and to lead his people. And we see how he has been faithful to them and how he is working all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We look back and we see that he is good and we see his promises. Isaiah 43 verse 2 came to mind. One of my favorite passages of scripture and in it, God says this, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you go through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. But you have to notice something in this passage as God speaks to his people during a time of persecution through the prophet Isaiah. He doesn't say you won't go through difficulties. You won't have to go through the waters of life. You won't have to go through the fires of life. He doesn't even say if you go through them. He says when you go through the difficult seasons of life, when you go through the waters, when you go through the fires, I will be with you. You will not be destroyed. And not until the cross of Jesus Christ do we see just how far God will go to be with us in our suffering. Jesus was Emmanuel. Jesus was God with us. And Jesus went through Suffering we can't even imagine. And it's not until the cross of Jesus Christ do we see just how far God will go to be with us. And the evil and the suffering and the trials that we face and we must endure will refine us and will give us a splendor and bring us glory and bring God glory if we will remain faithful, if we will stay under, if we will stay with him. And Peter speaks to this as well in verses 10 and 11. And he speaks about the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you through Jesus Christ, through salvation in him. We ser- they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. You see, the prophets spoke of the grace that was to come. The prophets linked the suffering of Christ with the glory of Christ. There is no resurrection if there is not a death, you see? And so there is a resurrection for our suffering and a resurrection for our pain and our trials that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. 
And it's interesting to consider for a moment that Christianity is the only religion in the world that portrays its God as the subject of evil and suffering. You can look at all the other world religions and the deities are apart from, are excluded from evil and suffering. And yet Jesus, God himself, God with us, went through unimaginable suffering. And so it's natural for us in our times of trial, in our times of pain, in our times of grief, in our times of suffering to say, why God? Why is this happening to me? That's a perfectly natural response. In fact, Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you turned away? And before that, in the garden, knowing what he was facing, he said, if there's any way that this can pass, make it pass. And then he surrendered and he submitted. And he said, yeah, not my will, but your will be done. And he suffered infinitely more than we will ever know. And he modeled perfectly this powerful Tim Keller quote that came to mind this morning. It's a, it's a quote that I have reflected on many different times in many different seasons. And it's a simple little quote, and I wish we had it to put it on the screen, but I'll say it several times, and if you can get out a piece of paper and a pencil and write this down, I believe this is a powerful idea. That if you build your life on God, suffering will drive you deeper into the source of your joy. If you build your life entirely and completely on the good and perfect and sovereign God of the universe, as seen most clearly in the person of Jesus Christ, if you build your life on God, suffering will drive you deeper into the source of your joy. And suffering will become the seeds that get planted that bring a harvest of joy and peace and righteousness in your life. If you build your life on God, suffering will drive you deeper into the source of your joy. And so while it is natural to ask the question why, we must realize we don't know what the answer is most of the time. But we do know what the answer is not. And the answer is not that God doesn't love you. It's not that God is punishing you. It's not that God is angry with you or that he doesn't care about you or he isn't present with you. He proved conclusively, permanently, for all time that he loves you, that he cares for you, that he's with you. He proved it on the cross of Jesus Christ. And so the first thing that we must do, we must look back. And for us as believers, we look back to the cross. We look back to something and we fix our eyes on that cross and see the love of God for us in that. The second thing we must do, we must look ahead to something. We must look ahead to something. And Peter actually opens this passage with what we must look ahead to in verses 3 through 5. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. We who are in Christ have a living hope, not a dead hope, not a temporary hope, but a living hope, a growing hope, 
a powerful hope in an heavenly inheritance that is guaranteed for us by the power of the resurrection. I think we have no idea just how wonderful heaven is going to be. We have no idea just how amazing the inheritance we have to look forward to. And we see it most clearly, the power of God in the resurrection. And in Christ's resurrection, we see the living hope that we have, that we will be resurrected, that when we pass from this life, we will pass into the next life, the eternal life. And that that's not just a compensation for the life that we've lived. It's the restoration of the life that we have lost to sin and death. It is pure. It is unfading. It is forever. In fact, Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He said that death and suffering are swallowed up in victory. I'd never really considered that before. They're swallowed up. They're not just defeated or done away with. They're swallowed up. They're taken in and made bigger. They make the glory of God bigger. Just as it says that, that um, in, in verses uh, 10 and 11 where we were talking about um, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The sufferings enhance the glories. The glories are made bigger by the suffering. And our glory in heaven and God's glory for eternity is made bigger by the suffering and the trials. They're not just defeated or done away with. They're swallowed up. In one way, I was trying to think of a way to illustrate this, and it's a really difficult concept to illustrate, but what came to mind was a really vivid dream that I had probably five or six years ago. Um, It was a dream where my family and I had gone out to dinner, and and we just had a wonderful dinner, uh, which was unusual at the time. We had little kids. I think Owen was three, Carson was one, Keaton and Ryan were probably seven or eight, And, and so Going out to dinner was a little bit of a production. Um, But we'd had a wonderful dinner. And we had to walk back a ways. We had to walk back through a park to get to our car. And I've only had a handful of dreams that were this vivid. But I remember as we were getting close to the car that there was a group of people that approached us. And immediately I was on edge. And I was being careful. And somehow from taking Owen and Carson out of the stroller, Heather took Carson and started put him in the car. And somehow while I was putting the stroller away, they, these people got a hold of, of Owen. And they started taunting us. And it became evident that they meant to take him and do harm to him. And that's when I woke up. And I woke up in that panicked, frenzied state that, that you have after a vivid dream like that. And, uh, and I remember the next time I saw Owen, that morning, a few hours later, I may have even gone down to spy on him as he slept, that the experience of the dream made me love him even more. The horror of potentially losing him made me even more grateful. The, the horror of the dream was swallowed up in the experience of still having him. And it made me grateful for him. And you take that times a thousand or times a million or times a billion, and you realize that everything bad that we endure, Peter's saying it will all be swallowed up. Paul is saying it will all be swallowed up and taken into the eternal 
goodness of God and make it that much bigger and that much better. So we must look back to something. We must look back to the cross. We must look ahead to something. We must look ahead to heaven, which is going to be better than we can even imagine. And third, we must look into something. We must look into something. In verse 12, Peter says, It was revealed to them, to the prophets, that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. We must look into the gospel in the meantime. Do you catch that final phrase that even angels long to look into the gospel? They long to. That that word means that they covet or they desire eternally to look into the gospel, to understand the gospel, to study the gospel, to, to grasp the beauty and the power of the gospel, the good news, the best news ever. And one of the critical mistakes that we make in the church today is we start to view the gospel as the diving board into the Christian faith when it's really the whole pool. It's the whole pool. We need the gospel as believers just as much as unbelievers need it. We need the gospel to sustain our faith. We need to preach the gospel to ourselves, not just to become Christians, but to remain Christians, to be encouraged, to be strengthened, to be spurred on, to remain faithful. We need the gospel just as much as non-believers And so I had to muse on the idea, how did Jesus get through his fiery furnace? How did Jesus get through his ordeal? Because Hebrews 12 tells us that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and is now seated at the right hand of God the Father. What was it that he set his eyes on? What was his living hope? And you might say, well, it was eternal bliss in heaven, just like the rest of us. But he already had that. He had that for eternity past. He had been that member of the divine community of love that is the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He had that. He left that for us. And that's what caused him to leave that, us, leave that behind. That's what caused him to leave heaven behind was you and me. Isaiah 53.11 tells us that after the suffering of his soul, Jesus Christ, after the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. It was you and it was me. You were his living hope. And knowing that, realizing that, believing that will make him your living hope. And Peter wraps this all up in verses 8 and 9 when he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Your story, your pain, your suffering can be taken up into his story, his pain, and his suffering that will lead us to inexpressible joy forever, for eternity. And so the question is, do you know him even though you haven't seen him? And do you love him 
even though you do not see him now, even though the meantime makes it difficult to see him or hear him or love him, do you choose to love him as an act of your will to believe, to rely upon, to cling to, to trust in him and him alone? Because if you build your life on God, your suffering and the trials that we face will drive you deeper into the source of your joy. And so as we bring this to a close, I want to I illustrate this one more way. Bring it all together. And I want to ask you to think, what is the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world? What is the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world? Was it the Holocaust? Was it Stalin or Lenin or Emperor Mao and the millions that they killed? Was it COVID-19, other natural disasters, plagues? Is it abortion and the millions that have died? I would submit to you that the worst thing that has ever happened in the history of the world is the cross of Jesus Christ, the perfectly innocent Lamb of God, crucified for the sins of the world, crucified for the sins of all those things we just discussed. But I would also ask you to consider what is the best thing that has ever happened in the history of the world? It's the cross of Christ. It's also the cross of Christ. And only God's perfect goodness and total sovereignty could reconcile the horror and the beauty of the cross. Have you ever considered that? That only God's perfect goodness and total sovereignty could reconcile the horror and the beauty of the cross. Only his perfect goodness and total sovereignty could recognize the, or could, could reconcile the goodness and the badness, the bestness and the worstness of this one single event. Only God. And that's why our bottom line is true. God is good in the meantime. Period. End of story. There is no asterisk. There is no further explanation needed. God is good, and God is good in the meantime. God is good even when we can't see him or hear him in the meantime. God is good especially when we can't see him or hear him in the meantime. And we as believers, as followers of Christ, we must let God's goodness and sovereignty define our circumstances in the meantime. We cannot allow our circumstances to define God's goodness or sovereignty in the meantime. We see only a shadow here and now, dimly. Then we shall see fully. We know in part now, but then we shall be fully known. We must hold on and allow God to reconcile the goodness and the badness of our meantime moments. We must allow God to be good, even in the meantime, especially in the meantime. And He will, He will reconcile the goodness and the badness of our meantime moments if we will let Him, if we will trust Him, if we will follow Him, if we will stay faithful. 
If we will echo the words of Job, who had it worse than anyone else in Scripture besides Jesus, I'm convinced. And he said, The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And he shamed Satan as he did it. I want to encourage you to read the book of Job if you got the stomach for it. Or read at least the first two chapters and then the last couple chapters to see how it ends. But we must allow God to define what is good in the meantime. And so as we close, I want to encourage you to respond in faith. As we sing this final song, as we ask God to give us faith to trust him, may that be your prayer wherever you are right now. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for the gift of faith, for the gift of salvation, for the gift of your word. We thank you for those who have gone before us, that we can look back to the prophets. We can look back in the pages of scripture. We can look back to the cross. We can look back to the apostle Paul and the apostle Peter and the others who through faith believed We can look ahead to our glorious inheritance in heaven. We can look ahead to what awaits us for eternity. And we can look into the power and the beauty of the gospel, anew and afresh. And we can trust you to be good and to define what is good for us and to reconcile the good and the bad and the the wonderful and the not-so-wonderful. In the meantime, give us faith, Lord. Give us faith to believe. Give us faith to trust. Give us faith to lean into you. In the meantime, in Jesus' name we pray.